This podcast contains mature content and listener discretion is advised. Also, be advised, we are not medical professionals and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. And we're in. We're in. Welcome, Welcome to, to Mystery, Mystery Team, Team Inc. Inc. I'm Maggie. And I'm Kayla. And this is John Benet Ramsey Part 2. Oh, he went right in on that one. You guys, don't be mad. Okay. <laughs> um, well, if you say it like that, they're going to be mad. <laughs> but don't you be won't mad. be mad. <laughs> um, but... We talked about it, and your mother and I just feel that it's best (laughs) if this is a three-part series, because we really want to do it justice, and there's so much to cover, and we decided that we will be breaking it up into three parts. So, Kayla, do you have thoughts about that? I'm going to reframe this not as a... We're sorry, but as a, you're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome for so much more content. Here's the thing, and I think, I mean, you and I have talked about this. Um, We said last episode, like, we really wanted to come at this case from a place of open-mindedness and compassion in a way that people typically don't cover it. And part of doing that is a lot of what we're going to talk about today, which is really looking at the way the case was handled, the way the investigation was handled, the problems between um, the Boulder Police Department and the DA's office and the way that the media impacted the case and what they did to the family and all that stuff. And I just think that a lot of the time people kind of like name check that stuff, but they don't really go into it. And I think it's important to understand the to really like truly understand this case because it was such a landmark case. And I just, we don't think there's any way to really do it justice without going into that stuff. And so we've decided to make it three parts. So yeah, good news, everyone. (laughs) You get three parts. You get three parts, kid. (laughs) Um, One more piece of business, which is if you're listening to this on Monday, December 20th, tonight we are doing a TikTok live at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And we would love for you to come join us. We'll be talking about the episode. We'll be talking about the case. We'll be talking about whatever you want to talk about. You can ask us questions in the chat. We will attempt to answer them. And I think it's going to be really fun. I'm excited. It's our first live. So be nice. Be nice. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. It always takes us a second to figure out a new interface. Well, me. No, for sure. I'm functionally like... A mom when it comes to technology. Are you? I feel like you're good at technology. No, no, no. Oh. I'm good at faking it because I am in the body of a millennial. Right. But I do have the mind of a, like, a mom 
who's like, yeah. I feel like there's too many buttons. Why aren't there any buttons? <laughs> like there's <laughs> too many and none at all. You're like, who's that guy? I'm like, I don't know yet, Kayla. We're watching the same movie. <laughs> What's he going to do? <clears throat> oh, are they in love? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I do have big mom watching a movie that no one else has seen either vibes. Yeah. You did that. We were watching um, holiday, like Hallmark holiday movies. And you were like, is he Santa? And we were like, we were like, we don't know yet. It's the first, it's the first five minutes. He was Santa. Right. But we didn't know that. All right. Are you ready? I was born ready. So first I would like to acknowledge my sources. Um, I used the book John Benet Ramsey Inside the Ramsey Murder Investigation by Steve Thomas, as Maggie did. I used uh, Presumed Guilty by Stephen Singular. Um, the Discovery Plus documentaries John Benet Ramsey, What Really Happened, and John Benet Ramsey, An American Murder Mystery. I also delved into the deep dark pools of Reddit. Also, side note, Stephen Singular sounds like a fairly odd parents. <laughs> pop star or villain he really does yeah villain pop star fairy villain pop star mm-hmm. and also yes. steve thomas is the mean cop yeah steve thomas is the mean cop here's the thing that source is great but you can't take it at face value you have to look at it through a lens of like when they're when steve thomas is like illuminating cop bias you have to you look at it and you're like this is great because it's illuminating this mental state they were in Yeah, I mean, it was helpful in that, yes, it did get us in the mindset of the cops. And also it filled in a lot of gaps in most of the, like, reporting on it. And it was always nonsense. Like, they were never (laughs) – like, there's reasons there's gaps in the reporting because they weren't doing anything helpful. But it is – he does give a blow-by-blow. He'll tell you, like, what room Patsy Ramsey was sitting in when what detective arrived. You know what I mean? Like, it's very detailed. And the Ramseys said later that Steve Thomas ruined their lives. So that is something that we have to know, like, when we're consuming this particular literature. Yeah, he really did. So, like, these are all things that we have to, we know going into. Yeah, and they really color the way we've been fed the information. All right. Yeah. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So when we last left the um, blooming clusterfuck at the Ramsey house, it was December 26th, 1996. Um, Detective Linda Arndt had been left alone at home with the Ramseys, the Whites, the Fernies, and the Ramseys reverend. Uh, The window for the ransom call had come and gone. At 1 p.m., Linda Arndt suggested that John search the house from top to bottom. John and Fleet White went down to begin their search in the basement. They went down the hall to the white door with the wooden latch and opened it. And John screamed, oh my God, oh my God. In that dark room tucked away at the back of the basement, John Ramsey found Jean Benet. She was lying on her back in the middle of the room, wrapped in a white blanket, Her arms were straight above her head. There was a piece of black duct tape over her mouth, a white cord on her right wrist, and a white cord around her neck with a piece of wood wrapped in it, a crudely fashioned garrote. John took the duct tape off his daughter's mouth, picked her up, and ran upstairs. 
Linda Arndt told him to put Jean Benet down by the front door. She felt for a pulse and announced that Jean Benet was dead. Upon confirming that Jean Benet was dead, Linda decided to move the body again and laid her down in front of the Christmas tree in the living room. So already a lot of issues happening here. The body has been moved twice. John took the duct tape off her mouth, so that piece of evidence is totally compromised. Um, Here's the thing. I, I would have done the same thing, but, like, when we look back at it from a forensics perspective, we see that, like, already. Yeah. Forensically, a disaster. Emotionally yeah. and psychologically, totally understandable. Yes. And I think it's important, again, to say they were not true crime aficionados. DNA was in its infancy. Like, yeah. the OJ trial had just ended, and that was the first trial where anybody used DNA, and, like, nobody really even believed in it. So for him yes. to, like, see his dead daughter, like, there's no <laughs> way in 1996 that he would go, oh, my God, I can't compromise the crime scene with yes, my DNA, course. because yes. it wasn't a thing. Right. So, Which is what's crazy to me when people say that, like, he – and I think Steve Thomas says this, like, that maybe he intentionally – what, like, you know, did what he did to, like, mess up the evidence. No. Crazy. No, it's crazy. Even if, like, you or I did that now in 2021 being true crime people, even then, like, I want to put it out now. It I'm not smart enough yeah. to think that way in a traumatic situation. I know myself, I freeze up and my brain becomes static. So if I ever compromise a crime scene, it's not because um, I'm covering <laughs> something up. It's because my brain is clouds at the moment. Yeah. And also forensically, now John's clothes, like fibers from John's clothes are on the blanket and on John Bonet. And... Now, John, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, yeah, forensically, it's yeah. a mess. But a mess. not not John Ramsey's fault. No. But just like already, we now have virtually nothing to go on. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's... It's a clusterfuck. It's a clusterfuck. So according to Linda Arndt, when she told John that his daughter was dead, he groaned and then said, it has to be an inside job. Now... That was in one of the sources that I used. A lot of the stuff that I have is from like one or two of many sources. Nobody's story remains the same. So take things like that with a grain of salt because yeah. I tr like we don't know. So Linda moves Sean Benet's body under the Christmas tree in the living room. Then John put a blanket over Jean Benet's body before going to get Patsy. And then Linda Arndt made everything worse by adjusting the blanket so it didn't cover Jean Benet's face. So, moved twice, two people have touched it, duct tape ripped off, there was a blanket put on her, and then the blanket was moved by another person. This is again where I just feel like the cops failed the Ramses because there's no Absolutely. reason that John should have been down there in the first place. Um, a lot of people say, and Linda says, like, John seemed stressed, so she gave him, but like, this was just like something, something to, to, do. Him to do. Yeah. I also feel for Linda Arndt because she had never worked a homicide before. And then, sure. and she was left alone with all these people. And then all of a sudden it became a homicide. And like, as we know, she did call for backup multiple times and nobody came. Yeah. Like I get it. It's all very unfortunate, but it was like, kind of feels like easy mistakes to make when you're not prepared yeah. to be in this high stakes situation. Definitely. So Linda Arndt adjusted the blanket. Then John came back in the room, knelt beside his daughter, 
put his arms around her, and then Patsy came in and threw herself across JonBenet's body. So just chaos. Once the body was found, the Boulder police returned to the house. The body was found at 1. The Boulder police returned. I think the first officer came back at 1.20. So the Ramses gave hair, blood, and handwriting samples right then and there. John gave them two white-lined notepads for handwriting samples, one that John had used and one that Patsy had used. Um, They also spoke to the police before the body was found and gave their accounts of the night before and the morning of the 26th. So they have given this information to the cops. Just keep that in mind. Commander John Eller was put in charge of the case for the Boulder Police Department. He brought in Steve Thomas and several other detectives. At 1.40 p.m., John was overheard by officers at the scene on the phone with their pilot arranging plans to go to Atlanta, and the officers had to be like, um, sir, you can't do that. And he, like, didn't protest, but they thought that was suspicious. So at this point, John, Andrew, and Melinda, who were John's children from his previous marriage, arrived, and the whole Ramsey family went over to the Fernie house. And at 2.25 p.m., for the first time since Patsy found the ransom note and called 911, the house was finally empty. So here's what we learned from the first interviews conducted in the Ramsey case. They interviewed Suzanne Savage, who was their former nanny. Suzanne said something that you hear a lot in this case, which is that the house was an absolute maze and it would have been very difficult to find the room in the basement that Jean Benet was found in if you didn't know the house well. Um, their housekeeper, Linda Hoffman Pugh, had been working with the Ramseys for 14 months when Jean Benet was murdered. Um, it is from Linda that Police found out that Jean Benet had been having trouble with bedwetting and that it was distressing for Patsy. She said that it happened in the first six months that she was with the family. It stopped and then it resumed again a month before Jean Benet was killed. Something to note is that in Linda's house, investigators found black duct tape, a pad of white lined paper that turned out to have been taken from the Ramsey house, three felt tip pens that were from the Ramsey house, and some nylon cord. All of these things were given openly, and Linda was very helpful and cooperative. If I recall correctly, and tell me if this is wrong, but I think in Steve Thomas's book, he said basically the cops were like, hey, do you have any Sharpies? And they were like, yeah, or whatever, like black felt tip pen. And they produced them. And they were like, do you have any lined notepads? And they were like, yeah. And like her husband went in the garage and was like, yeah, here's duct tape. Like, didn't the cops ask them for each of those things? I'm pretty sure they asked them for each of those things. And they were like, yes, here you go. And like, it was like trick or treating, basically. So yeah, they weren't like trying to hide anything. And I feel like, I don't know if this is something you experienced in the 90s in your home. But my parents used to buy stacks of legal pads. Yeah. And just leave them in the house. And, like, I would take one. Like, I guarantee you that, like, my babysitters had legal pads from our house. Yeah, yeah. And my mom bought packs of Sharpies. Like, this is normal. This is before cell phones and laptops. So, like, when you had to remember something, you just wrote it on a legal pad. Yeah. So, um, some interesting things we learned from the neighbors. One neighbor said that on the night of the murder, they remembered seeing the light 
on in the southeast corner sunroom and that that was the first time in the past few years that they had ever seen that light on. Another neighbor said that they saw the light on in the butler kitchen around midnight and that they had never seen that light on. That This will never be addressed again, just <laughs> like they didn't look into it, but just keep those in mind. The lights? Yeah. That's to the last me, time we'll hear about the lights. Yeah, that's fair. So I'll just say it now. To me, I think that's support of the intruder to that theory. I don't disagree with you. That's all. The most important neighbor is Melody Stanton. Well, it's not a competition. Listen. No, no. <laughs> she, you're all very important. No, no, no. In your own ways. <laughs> she gets the award for M-I-N. The most important neighbor. <laughs> We should use that for every time a neighbor isn't interviewed in a case. <laughs> well, they can't all be most important. Oh, I see. In like any case? Yeah. Okay. Like we'll, every case will pick a most important neighbor and then they get that song. Your little miss, most important neighbor, <laughs> be- be- most beautiful smile, 2021. <laughs> Melody Stanton. Melody Stanton. Yes, Melody, go baby girl. <laughs> go baby girl. <laughs> you sparkle. Woo. Sparkle, you baby. sparkle, baby. <laughs> so originally, Melody said she didn't want to get involved. She didn't notice anything. But she did end up changing her story. And she said that she heard the piercing scream of a child, which was abruptly cut off. And that she heard this scream between midnight and 2 a.m. And then the scream was followed a short time after by the sound of um, metal on cement. No judgment. But I'm just going to say it because we're all thinking it. How do you experience that and then say, like, I don't want to get involved and not bring it up for so long? I just don't understand. Well. No judgment. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. I think that there is a lot of a lot to be said for the Ramsey's position in Boulder and how yeah, influential they are. Um, yeah. I can understand not wanting to get involved, especially something like very distressing like that. Investigators went to talk to the Whites and the Fernies on the 27th. And from the Whites and the Fernies and their other friends, investigators heard but again grain of salt that some of the parents had been concerned of late about jean benet being quote groomed for pageants and that they had planned to talk to patsy about it after christmas and when investigators went to go talk to the whites and the fernies both couples said that they had already been interviewed by private detectives hired by the ramses which is how police learned that hours after jean benet's body was found the ramses lawyered up and a lot of people say this is suspicious. I will get to it later, but again, compassion and understanding. So the Ramseys hired attorney Brian Morgan to represent John and Patrick Burke to represent Patsy. Um, they hired the PI firm of Ellis Armistead in Denver. They hired a DC PR specialist named Pat Carton, and they hired former FBI profiler John Douglas. It is worth noting that Brian Morgan was very close to DA Alex Hunter and the deputy DA Hofstrom. I know people think, or I know that at the time, 
the cops thought it was suspicious that they hired a PR firm. Like, lawyers is kind of one thing, but hiring different lawyers for each of them and hiring a PR firm, I know, is something that was criticized. Um, Yes, people did think it was suspicious that they hired a PR specialist. Two things about this. I said I was going to get to it later, but two things about this. One, when you are like a wealthy, well-connected CEO of a billion-dollar company, hiring lawyers right out the gate is actually not a crazy and suspicious thing to do. Especially I actually if- think anytime that you are close to a murder investigation, if you have the money, you should hire a lawyer. Absolutely. I agree. I think that being the parents of the victim, I think that they probably could tell right away that the police w- were treating them yeah. in a specific way. Um, they are not stupid. Like, if I was at that crime scene and found my daughter murdered, the first thing I would do is lawyer up because obviously they're going to come after you. Yeah. And I think hiring a PR specialist is probably a really good idea. And it, look what happened. Like, obviously they needed a PR specialist. Yeah. So none of that is suspicious to me. That's actually very smart to me. Yes. So December 27th, 1996. Uh, Detective Linda Arndt and Sergeant Larry Mason tried to set up formal interviews with the Ramseys. Um, John spoke to them, but he only did so once they agreed to let his two lawyers in the room, and they spoke for about 40 minutes. Police later said that they were suspicious that John didn't ask anything about the murder or the autopsy or the cause of death. Um, I'm going to go ahead and venture a guess that this is because they were getting information straight from the district attorney Mm -hmm. um, at the same time that the police were, which is part of the problem. But the police were not aware at this time that they were getting information from the DA. So they were like, why wouldn't he ask about his man? And it's like, (laughs) because he knew. (laughs) Yeah. It is in this interview that John confirmed that he kicked in the window in the basement the previous summer when he had gotten accidentally locked out of the house, and that's why it was broken. Police asked for possible suspects, and this is when John mentioned Jeff Merrick, an ex-employee of Access Graphics. Um, and police were told that Patsy was too drugged up to talk to them. She had been taking Valium since John Bonet was found. And listen, before we get all judgy about it, I absolutely understand. Um, this is my family's way of dealing with grief as well. <laughs> so I absolutely understand. Yeah. People who live in big houses shouldn't throw Valium is what we're saying. <laughs> absolutely correct. No judging. A search warrant for the Ramsey's house was served at 8 p.m. on December 26th, and thus began a 10-day search of the home, which I will return to. On December 28th, 1996, Steve Thomas (laughs) returned from an undercover narcotics operation and walked straight into a disaster. This is my favorite part in the book, because this is where he goes, (laughs) like... I walked down the halls of the Boulder Police Department and ugly modern art jumped out at me because I guess the Boulder Police Department was too crunchy for real police (laughs) wall decorations like plaques and guns. He was so mad that there were no plaques. He's really mad about the modern art. And then he says my favorite thing, my second favorite thing, which I may have said in the first episode. So he walks up to Ron Gossage and he says... 
We had known each other since we were patrol officers together in Wheat Ridge, and I considered him one of the best detectives in the house. He was assigned to crimes against persons. Quote, We've got some problems with this thing, he said, in perhaps one of the biggest understatements he had ever made. (laughs) He described how the crime scene had been compromised big time, and he said we had not yet even interviewed the parents about the murder. Oh, I found the modern art part. Yes, read it. Framed explosions of bizarre modern art flashed from the walls. Reminders that I was back in the new and improved Boulder Police Department, which had no place for traditional cop decor, such as plaques and photos of decorated officers. It's so stupid. So dumb. I just love how mad he is about the modern art. So the most important thing to understand upon Steve Thomas's arrival is that the Boulder police had already decided that the Ramses had killed or at least been involved with the death of their daughter. Yeah. Full stop. They had decided that. So before we continue to discuss the case, I want to go over, as Maggie said, what was happening with Boulder law enforcement at this time because it was absolutely a clusterfuck. So the Boulder Police Department was run by Chief Tom Kobe. The Boulder Police Department had no homicide unit, Kobe had never worked a homicide before. Commander John Eller, who had been assigned to head the case, had never worked a homicide before. Steve Thomas had never worked a homicide before. John Bonet's murder was the first homicide in Boulder in 1996. So totally, totally unprepared for this. Within the Boulder Police Department, there were basically two camps. One was a small camp and one was the Steve Thomas camp. The Steve Thomas camp saw Chief Kobe as, like, soft and crunchy and, like, not hard enough on crime. They felt like Boulder as a city was kind of like a haven for drug dealers because it was, like, so hippy-dippy and liberal. So there was a lot of distrust going on within the police department. And the Boulder Police Department very much did not like the district attorney's office The district attorney at the time was Alex Hunter, who Steve Thomas said had a policy of pushing cases to plea deals as opposed to taking them to trial. Um, Thomas also pointed out that he had a very big problem with the fact that Hunter never sentenced anyone to death. So there's the attitude that Steve Thomas is bringing to the table. It really comes down to whether or not you believe that people who commit crimes should be punished or rehabilitated. Yes, and we know that Steve Thomas does believe that they need to be punished. He does not believe in rehabilitation. He said basically, like, the Boulder Police Department and the DA had been turned into a social services operation. God forbid. And he said it like it was a negative. So that's what we're dealing with. So Steve Thomas met the Ramses on the 28th. When the Ramses willingly went to the police station to give more handwriting samples, more hair and blood, and fingerprints. All told, I think the Ramses submitted handwriting samples four times. Thomas was immediately judgmental of how grief-stricken he thought the Ramses did not seem. Which, again, we're not going to play that game. We're not going to judge how people grieve or how they seem in the public eye after having lost their child. I think, I mean, I've said this to you before, but I think if I, um, if I had been like a public figure at the time that my dad had died, 
the media 100% would have thought that I did it. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My way of grieving was like going on a bender. And um, I was just like out at the bars all the time. And I just think, and like, I look be like, back on that. Heartless daughter yes. throws caution to the wind in the yes. wake of father's mysterious yeah. death. Yeah. If I was like, if I was like Lindsay Lohan at the time or whatever, it would have been like, did she kill him for the inheritance? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, yeah. So, 100%. I don't know. I just think it's funny. Like, when I think back about it's just like, yeah, the way people grieve. But yeah, we're not going to play that game. Yeah, we're not. So the autopsy was performed by coroner John Meyer. Um, it was completed on December 28th, 1996. On December 29th, the Ramsey family left Boulder without having given the Boulder Police Department a formal interview and went to Atlanta, where on December 31st, 1996, Jean Benet Ramsey was laid to rest next to her sister Beth. And then on January 1st, the Ramseys broke their silence and gave an interview on CNN from Atlanta. Now. This was like a huge deal at the time. Huge deal. Because by this point, JonBenet's face is on the cover of like every Inquirer magazine. You know what I mean? Like her face is everywhere. It's but it's a combination wide story already. And the, and the Ramseys had not spoken publicly yet. I'm about to get to the media, but an important thing to note is that most of the stories in the media at this point were, why are the Ramseys not cooperating with the police? Mm-hmm. The Ramseys refuse to talk to the police. They won't cooperate. That's the story that's being pushed. So then they go on CNN and they give this interview. People spent hours and hours and hours analyzing Every moment of this interview, some things that I have noticed were, you know, again, judging how they appeared to be grieving or not grieving. Everybody says John is too measured and controlled. Patsy is like too emotional or not emotional enough. She's obviously been taking Valium for a week. Like, I I understand the way both of them behave in this interview. I think I would probably be one or the other at any point if I had to do an interview like this. So something that people note about this interview is that John says, we want to know why this happened. And they're like, why is he asking why and not who did it or how it happened? And, you know, who's to say? Just something to keep in mind that that's what he said. And this is the interview where we see Patsy break down into tears and say, Keep your babies close to you. There's someone out there. Back in Boulder, things were heating up. Uh, Commander John Eller was pissed that the DA's office hadn't been able to get an interview with the Ramses and that the DA was working so closely with the Ramses. The DA felt that the Boulder Police Department was convinced that the Ramses had done it and wouldn't look into anything else. And Commander Eller formally removed the DA from the case. Concurrently, Chief Kobe was also turning down every offer of help from the Denver Police Department and from other law enforcement agencies. And the Denver Police Department had a very strong homicide unit and Kobe just like would not let them help. And at this point, once the holidays ended, the media firestorm really, really took over. Um, The media had camped out in Boulder from day one. And by the time we hit January, there were leaks of confidential information appearing in newspapers and tabloids almost daily. There's a lot about this case that made it like the perfect fodder for the media. 
Um, we were a year out from the O.J. Simpson case, which was kind of like, I don't know if it was the first, but it was like the biggest public crime, basically, and the media just ate it up. So after the O.J. case ended, there was a vacuum. The 24-hour news cycle was like a relatively new thing, so people were still figuring out how to fill that time. And then we have the victim, who was this beautiful, little, blonde, rich, white girl. Um, in true crime, we talk about, like, the less dead, and I would say that Jean Benet was probably the most dead a person could be. Yeah. And then we have the almost endless supply of photos and videos of Jean Benet. Like, because she was in pageants, the media and the press had the ability to get their hands on shit about her constantly and pageant photographers and videographers sold it to them yeah so it was just a perfect storm in early january the globe made headlines by purchasing and then publishing confidential photos of the crime scene i also read in cyril weck's book that um that someone from the coroner's office leaked autopsy photos to the globe the globe published them and then immediately like got charged with a crime like the lawyers came after them um for impeding the investigation and they had to like cease publishing them but the idea that a tabloid would publish autopsy photos from this case is just i don't know to me just sort of the pinnacle of what the, what happened in this case like how Badly, the media fucked up, essentially. Yeah, that's disgusting. Uh, The Globe was like one of the worst offenders. The Boulder Police Department was leaking confidential information and misinformation to the media. And they embarked on this campaign throughout the case to use the media and manipulate the media to bolster their case against the Ramses and hopefully get one of them to crack under the pressure. So... From the beginning, they were leaking to the press that the Ramses wouldn't cooperate. They said that they wouldn't give DNA samples. They said that they wouldn't give interviews. The other half of the media storm was that the Boulder police were also being highly criticized in the press. Um, It came out how poorly they handled the crime scene. So they were being slammed for that. That was probably being leaked by the DA's office. So the DA was leaking about the police. The police were leaking about the DA and the Ramses. The Ramses were going on CNN and like it was just chaos. In the book Presumed Guilty, Stephen Singular says, quote, We loudly proclaimed the Ramses' guilt and our innocence while we'd become voyeurs addicted to a powerful combination of titillation and death. And I think that's true. It was just like really grotesque is the word that I would use. So at the end of January, um, the Boulder Police Department presented the DA's office with all of their evidence against the Ramseys. And the DA told them, as they had been telling them the whole time, they didn't have enough to charge the Ramseys. The Boulder Police Department accused the DA of lying down for the Ramseys. And in the words of Steve Thomas, this, quote, drove the final spike between the Boulder Police Department and the DA's office. So the next big turning point in this case, came in March of 1997 when the DA brought Lou Smith out of retirement. 
He was a homicide detective for 20 years. Uh, he then went to work for the coroner's office, and then he was an investigator for the DA. So he has done every angle of work in homicide that you can. He worked over 200 homicide cases. He never lost a single one. So Steve Thomas described Lou Smith's job as indexing, organizing, and cross-referencing the case file. Lou Smith said he was brought in because of the rift between the DA and the Boulder Police Department about whether they had enough or any evidence against the Ramses. Mm-hmm. So Steve Thomas and the cops were basically like, thank God, here's this actual homicide detective. He's going to come in. He's going to, you know, put this all together neat enough for the DA to accept our case. Lou said that upon arriving in Boulder, he had seen what the police and the media had been saying about the case. He figured someone in the family did it. It was just a matter of figuring out who it was. And then three days after arriving in Boulder, Lou Smith met with the Boulder Police Department and told them the last thing they wanted to hear. He didn't think anyone in the Ramsey family had killed Jean Benet. And that is where we will take a break. Lou. Lou. I'm glad he's here. Me too. Thank God. It, I get <laughs> <laughs> the stress I feel before Lou Smith shows up is like <laughs> intense. I know. It's like it's finally real. dad's home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. After, After these, these messages. messages. And we're back. We're back. Okay, are we ready? I'm ready. Okay. So, after a lot of back and forth between the Boulder Police Department and the DA's office, on April 30th, 1997, the Ramses finally sat down to give separate formal interviews to detectives. Now, the police went into these with one goal, which was to lock down each of the Ramsey's stories to see if they contradicted themselves, each other, or their first statements to police on December 26th. John's interview lasted 90 minutes. It was in this interview that he proposed his theory of what happened, which was that someone came in through the basement window, killed his daughter, and left. Patsy's interview lasted six hours. Insane. And they tried so hard to get her to break. You know, nothing earth shattering came out of the interview. Steve Thomas, of course, said that it felt rehearsed. um, And he noted that the only time she broke down was when she wept describing the discovery of Jean Benet's body. I think saying that it felt rehearsed is dumb because of course it was because she was going in for a formal interview about the murder of her child And um, if you have the resources to prepare yourself for that legally and psychologically, 100% you should do that. I rehearse phone calls. Yeah. I rehearse drive-through orders. Correct. Um, I think it's crazy that anyone in this case, uh, along any point of the investigation, criticizes them for seeming rehearsed. Because, of course, they are. If it doesn't seem rehearsed, I'm concerned. Because why are you that good at acting? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I also think it's interesting that he makes a note of saying the only time she broke down. Because if she hadn't broken down at all, she would have not shown enough emotion. If she had been weeping the entire time, they would have thought she was posturing. So it's like, you can't win. 
especially if someone's already decided you're guilty. There's and if especially if you're a woman, like you just can't win. The only time you can ever judge someone for their behavior during a police interview is when Jody Arias started singing Oakley <laughs> Night in the interrogation room like she was auditioning for American Idol. Oh, you are absolutely correct. I'm sorry. Like, if you watch that footage, you are legally allowed to judge her for that. Yeah. That was a choice. So the next day, on May 1st, the Ramses held another press conference. In this press conference, they out and out proclaimed their innocence. They both said the sentence, I did not kill Jean Benet. A few days after this press conference... The Ramsey team put up flyers around Boulder, offering a $100,000 reward for any information on the murder. And then soon after, new flyers went up that were wanted posters bearing John Ramsey's face. In July of 1997, Steve Thomas and Lou Smith, who it turns out knew each other before the case, went to the Ramsey house together. Um, And they, like, worked through theories and they talked through the evidence and mostly from what I understand, just, like, yelled at each other. Yeah. Um, Steve obviously still believed the Ramses did it. Lou firmly believed that an intruder did it. What I wouldn't give to just watch video of that, though. Oh, I... you you If you want video of something not dissimilar to that, there is an interview that the Ramses did on Larry King with Steve Thomas, where Steve Thomas says on national television, I think Patsy did it, to her face. And John Ramsey says, as a police officer, what you have done has ruined my family's life. I mean, the balls on Steve Thomas are... Go ahead. You can finish that sentence. (laughs) Impressive. So let's talk about the evidence. Before I get into the body and the autopsy, I do want to say that um, it has been ruled out that there was any long-term sexual or physical abuse. That's not in the picture anymore. We're not going to talk about it. Yes. Done. And I want to say a lot of the time in it, there was a documentary that I watched that said something really poignant, which was that JonBenet became a footnote in her own murder. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to go through the body. I am going to go through the autopsy, but this is not the focus. So JonBenet was found in the basement with the room was referred to as the wine cellar by the family. She was wearing white long johns and a white long sleeve shirt with a sequin star on front. Uh, She was wrapped in a white blanket. Her hands were above her head. There was a white nylon cord around her right wrist. There was a garrote made of the same cord around her neck and black duct tape on her mouth. The wood in the garrote was found to be made from a broken paintbrush that belonged to Patsy Ramsey, that lived in the basement. Um, investigators found DNA under Jean Benet's fingernails on the waistband of her long johns and in her underwear. Her long underwear and her underwear were urine-stained. Um, I also read in some sources that there were some dark fibers found on her and also a beaver hair. The autopsy revealed some very interesting and puzzling things. Uh... She had been strangled by the garrote, but according to Lou Smith, um, there were marks on her neck around the core that indicate that she was struggling against it and trying to get it off of her. Uh, She suffered a blow to the head on the right side of her skull. The blow left a rectangular pattern 
on her skull, but it did not break the skin. Uh, the ruling, I think now the widely accepted ruling is that the cause of death was the blow to the head and not the strangulation. Um, she had matching abrasions below her right earlobe and on her back. Lou Smith said that these abrasions were made by a stun gun. Um, the Boulder Police Department said they were made by buttons from something or that they were totally irrelevant, but it wasn't a stun gun. Don't even think about stun gun. That's definitely not what it was. Didn't the Boulder Police also conjecture that it may have come from the train tracks um, on that, the model train set? But That, that theory came sense. from the documentary The Case of John Benet Ramsey that aired on CBS in 2016. Copy that. Yes. Um, we can talk about that one in part three because it'll come up. The autopsy also showed blood and an abrasion to the hymen and vaginal wall that could be consistent with sexual assault. Something interesting to note is that, according to Steve Thomas, the coroner only stayed at the crime scene for seven minutes, and while he was there, he failed to perform two key tests that would have determined the time of death. He did not take vitreous fluid from the eye, and he did not take her internal body temperature, according to Steve Thomas, Mm -hmm. which is... Infuriating. Which would have established a timeline. Exactly. And then the most puzzling part of the autopsy, which is that they found partially digested pineapple in her system. And it <laughs> that this is the part that really trips me up, is the pineapple. We'll come back to it. But there was yeah. partially digested pineapple in her system, uh, which means that it had to have been eaten fairly recently. Yeah. So, the basement. In the basement, there was a broken window, which, as John said, was broken. He said he broke it the previous summer when he got locked out of the house. According to some accounts, that window was also open when she was found. But it was, like, I can't, I don't know if it was open or if they said that it was, if it was unlocked. Um, crime scene video and photos show it open but was it opened before the photos were taken like i just can't get a lock on how open the window was yeah i i don't i don't think we can say for sure although i do think lou smith says it's when he was looking at the crime scene photos he could see that it was open the source that i read said that it was unlatched yes not necessarily that it was like standing ajar if that makes sense yeah and that's where i the problem is is that in the photos it's open in in like written sources it was unlatched but was it open and unlatched when it happened, or did someone open it before the crime scene photos were taken? Mm-hmm. There was a grate outside in the ground that led to the basement window. Boulder detectives will tell you that the debris around the window, um, including like the spider webs over the grate, were totally undisturbed. This is impossible to nail down is the state of the debris and the grate and the window and the dirt and like nobody took any pictures because by the time they got there with cameras it was far too late to determine what it actually looked like when anything happened. Nobody can agree on it. It makes me want to rip my eyeballs out of my head. Um, But there is a grate that leads to a window that was the glass was broken. It may or may not have been open. There is debris around the window. It may or may not have been disturbed. Just for clarity's sake, the basement had a window that was like slightly below ground level. 
And it opened up into like a little um, concrete like window well that was covered by a steel grate that was like flush with the ground level cement outside of the building. Thank you. That's very hard for me to describe, but that's exactly what it is. It's it's much it's like much easier to understand if you see it. But essentially, like what this is all getting at is the idea that someone would have had to remove the metal grate to climb down into the window well and then climb in through the window. And so whether or not the grate has been disturbed or the window has been disturbed would essentially explain whether or not someone had been able to come through it. Precisely. Thank you. I need to fact check this, but in the Dr. Oz interview with the Ramses and Lou Smith's daughter, they said that there was debris from the window well, like dried leaves that were inside, like under the grate, um, in the basement, which would have been consistent with someone tracking it in from the window well. So I'll fact check that, but that is something that they said in the interview. I think from what I remember is that a lot of it is just like, you know, the cops versus the loose. Yeah. You know, so like, who can we listen to? Steve Thomas just will like write it off and be like, well, there wasn't anything. And that spider web was still there. So there's no way. But, you know, who's to fucking say? And again, we I don't know when the crime scene photos that Lou Smith was looking right. at were taken. So we can't know. It. We just don't know because it's a mess. So Lou Smith pointed out that there was a suitcase pushed under the window perpendicular to the wall. There was a scuff mark on the wall below the window. Lou also found a footprint in the basement near where Jean Benet's body was found. It is a print from a high-tech brand boot. Um, something to note, uh, nobody in the Ramsey family had a high-tech brand boot. And later on in the investigation, it was impossible to get any of the police officers to submit their boots. Oh, that's So they annoying. couldn't... Isn't that so annoying? Um, one source that I read and... Tell me if you heard anything about this, because I'm so confused. But I read somewhere that Fleet White at one point said that he moved the suitcase. In Steve Thomas's book, he says that Fleet White did move the suitcase. So, and I talked about, I mentioned this actually in the first episode. The first time Fleet White went down to the basement, remember he picked up the glass from the broken window? Right. And like put it in the whatever, in like up in the, up by the window. Um... That, that is, I think, when he supposedly moved the suitcase. Inside the suitcase was a sham and a duvet. On that sham and duvet, investigators found fibers that were also found in Jean Benet, and they found fibers from Jean Benet's clothes. One of the sources that I used also mentioned that there was a Dr. Seuss book inside the suitcase and a broken piece of glass on top of the suitcase, but that could be the glass that Fleet White moved if he did, in fact, move a piece of glass from that area. Another thing that people point to is that there were no footprints in the snow outside the house, but if you look Mm -hmm. at the photos, there's actually no snow on the walkway up to the front door. And there's no snow on the back patio where the grate to the basement window is. So there's that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Moving on to the rest of the house. I, one of my sources said that on a bathroom counter, there was a balled up red children's turtleneck Mm -hmm. sweater. An interesting note about this turtleneck sweater is that 
at some point Patsy said that Jean Benet yes. went to bed in that in yes. a red she said sweater that the morning of, and like the, that was like in her first conversation that she had with police the more when Jean Benet was still missing yes. and she was obviously found in the white shirt with the sequin star on it which she wore to the Christmas party the night before so there was not an answer to that um there was a black mag light flashlight found on the kitchen counter um I heard tell of a baseball bat found outside um one source said that it was tested and nothing was found on it or that it was and then one source said that it was not tested at all so again no idea Jean Benet's bedding was not urine stained and it had fibers from the pajamas that she was wearing when she was found. So we can conclude that it was not changed between her getting out of bed and being found in the basement. Something to note. They also found in the kitchen a bowl of pineapple with milk with a spoon in it, a glass with a tea bag in it. And they found that the bowl and the glass had Burke's fingerprints and Patsy's fingerprints on them. And then we have the scream. So the scream, as we said, was reported by most important neighbor, Melody Stanton, who said that she heard a child scream between midnight and 2 a.m. It was abruptly cut off. And then she also heard the sound of metal scraping against cement shortly after. That doesn't sound like a metal grate outside of a basement window to me. Lou, Smith, and Steve Thomas investigated the scream and the basement together. Interestingly, when I first heard about this investigation, it sounded like Lou did it on his own. And then Steve Thomas describes also doing this experiment with Lou. So And there's video. Yeah. So the main question about the scream was, If Melody Stanton heard it across the street, how did the Ramseys not hear it from inside the house? So they did an experiment. They brought in an audiologist. And they determined that you could hear the scream from across the street. According to Lou Smith, you could not hear the scream from the Ramseys' bedroom upstairs. But according to Steve Thomas, you could. And Detective Ron Gossage said that You could hear movement and noise anywhere in the house, even when people were trying to be quiet. I'll also just recall something I mentioned in the first episode, which is that that house was when they built the addition, they built a bunch of soundproofing into it. And since the Ramsey, the um, main bedroom, Patsy and John's bedroom was on the third floor and the basement was three floors below that. I think it's understandable that maybe you wouldn't hear it up there. Yes, and also Lou does say there's like a pipe in the basement that leads directly out to the street, and so it would have been like an acoustic amplifier aimed directly at Melody Stan's house. Right. So that's the scream. Lou Smith and Steve Thomas have different conclusions regarding the debris on and around the grate in the window, and about whether or not one can get into the window at all. (laughs) It's... It's... (laughs) So... According to Lou Smith and half of the people who you talked to about this case, Lou proved that you could easily slide into the basement through the window with very little trouble. There's a video of him doing it. There is, yes. And then you can use the suitcase to step on and get back out the window. Now, Steve Thomas has a very different... I don't know if he was on a different plane of existence this day (laughs) or what was happening, but his analysis... 
I'm going to call it confirmation bias, but his analysis of them trying to get through the window is very different. He said that Detective Wickman had to wiggle through headfirst on his stomach and then grab a pipe to lever himself in. He described Smith slithering in on his back, and he said that they both dragged significant amounts of debris in with them, and no such debris was found during the original search. Here's what I will say. If you choose to go through that window head first, it, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> and I think that maybe Steve Thomas didn't consider, I don't know, to me, it's just so funny to be like, look how hard it is. And it's like, well, yeah, because you went in you're doing the, it the dumbest hard way. way. Yeah. In the CBS documentary, The Case Of, they rebuilt the house. It's actually really interesting. Um, and the main reporter on the documentary, like, tries to go in the window, and she, like, goes through the window. Yeah. Um, and it's not, like, the most fun she's ever had, but she, like, gets she through gets the window. In, yeah. And the th- point that they try to make in that documentary is that, like, if there was a cobweb... So the the crime scene video shows that there's, like, a cobweb in the corner of that window. Yeah. And everyone says, like, if you went through that window you would disturb the cobwebs. So their argument is that no one could have gone through that window because the cobweb is undisturbed in that crime scene video. So Steve Thomas and Lou Smith also performed um, what I would call a tedious recreation in the basement of um, John finding the body. It seems to me that Steve Thomas got a little caught up on John saying he, like, immediately saw the body when he walked in the room Mm -hmm. and so they like did this experiment to see if they could like see the body with the light off and like how far you'd have to step in the room to see the body it just feels so circumstantial to me this crazy nonsense steve thomas was like i couldn't see anything and lou smith was like i can see it it's like not it's right there yeah and it's like not a very large room um i i i'm not sure why they did it but steve thomas used it to further his theory that like John Ramsey knew that she was there and I'm sure Lou Smith thought it was absurd that they were even doing it right in the first place whatever conclusions you want to draw from this Steve Thomas said it well he said when I finally left the house I felt we had all betrayed Jean Benet by being unable to resolve our differences I agree I completely agree okay so now we can move on to the note the first and most obvious thing to note about the note is its length. It was exceptionally long for a ransom note. Um, some people say that this meant that the person who wrote the note felt that they had time, uh, that they perhaps knew they were not in danger of getting caught. Um, in the CBS documentary, they do take the time to write out the note word for word. Um, it takes them 21 and a half minutes and that's, you know, knowing exactly what they're going to write. Yeah. Cause most notes are like less than a page, right? Like most notes are oh, like yes. 20 words and this yep. one was like 300 words or something. Yeah. It was like 370 words. This documentary, they like went through the note line by line and <laughs> figured out that 76% of it is extraneous when you compare it to other ransom notes. Like they could have achieved what they wanted to achieve with the note in 24% of what they wrote. Right. Um, it was determined that the note was written on a notepad that came from the Ramsey house using a pen that was later found in the Ramsey house, like in the little basket under the phone. 
if we recall, on December 26th, John gave investigators two notepads. One was his and one was Patsy's. It was determined that the note was written on the notepad belonging to Patsy. They also found, I've heard, one or two false starts of the note. Um, The most notable one says, Dear Mr. and Mrs. I, but the I is understood to be the beginning of a capital R. The stickiest part of this note is the handwriting. As I said, the Ramses gave, I think, four handwriting samples. The Boulder Police Department went to multiple handwriting analysts. Um, The DA told them, we need you to find someone who will state definitively that they believe that Patsy Ramsey wrote this note or we will not bring this to a grand jury. And they found someone. They found someone named Don Foster, who was an Elizabethan scholar um, and a professor at Vassar. Don Foster eventually said that he would go on record saying that Patsy Ramsey wrote the note. But then I found out that before the Boulder Police Department even went to Don Foster, the Ramses went to Don Foster and they asked him to determine if Patsy's writing matched the note. And apparently he wrote a letter to them stating, I know you're innocent. I will stake my professional reputation on it. So... We still don't have anyone definitively saying that Patsy wrote the note. There are a lot of strange elements within the note. There's the $118,000 ransom amount, which is a very small amount for a ransom, um, especially considering that John Ramsey was worth about $7 million at the time. A lot of people will point to the fact that John received a bonus of $118,000 that year, which is very strange. 118 has also been connected to Psalm 118, which reads, which begins... Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Dun, dun, dun. Weird. (laughs) Yes. There's the fact that the note says John should use his, quote, good Southern common sense. John was from Michigan. So just wrong, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Incorrect. I mean, to me, that feels like if it's an actual ransom note, which I'm not convinced that it is, but... like an inside joke basically between whoever wrote it and john Hmm. not a joke necessarily but like a like an inside thing yeah that maybe is referring to something only they know because they had lived in atlanta yeah so maybe the author of the note knew that he had lived in atlanta and thought he was from the south who's to say it doesn't make any sense and then there is the sign off to the note which reads victory exclamation point svtc SBTC has been interpreted in so many ways. This is really where Reddit will um, make your brain turn to soup. Mm -hmm. Some to note would be saved by the cross. Some people think it means Subic Bay Training Center, which I'll get to. Um, Patsy's mom thought it stood for son of a bitch Tom Carson, who I believe was an ex-employee of Access Graphics. Um, It's still, nobody knows what it means. Most of the time, from what I've, understood SBTC is interpreted based on who you think killed John Benet Ramsey. Right. In October 1997, Mark Beckner took over for Commander John Eller, and in December of 1997, he gave his first press conference on the case in which he stated that the Ramseys were, quote, still under an umbrella of suspicion, which just made everything worse. 
And then the next big thing that happened was in June 1998, the Ramses sat down for another formal interview with investigators. This time it was the DA's team and the Boulder Police Department doing the interviewing. Now this is the, these are the interviews that we have footage of. The first time they were not allowed to record them. This time they were recorded. And in these interviews, police really tried to get them both to crack. They came down very hard on Patsy. There were a couple of points where she did get angry. Um, And Boulder Police Department investigators will tell you that that meant she had it in her to kill her child. Uh, And this is the interview in which they said, they say to her, what would you say if I told you that we had trace evidence linking you to the murder? And she says, I don't give a flying flip how scientific it is. Go back to the damn drawing board. In this interview, she also tells them to stop screwing around. And she explicitly states, I want to work with you. Lou Smith left the interview convinced that Patsy didn't do it. And the Boulder Police Department left the interview convinced that she did it. Shortly after these interviews, Steve Thomas resigned from the case. He said that the Boulder DA was completely mishandling the case and he couldn't be a part of it anymore. Um, He cites the final straw as being when, in August, the Boulder police brought their case to the DA again. They asked for a grand jury again. And then he says that Alex Hunter told them that he needed to go talk to his people because, quote, this is a political decision. Hmm. Interesting. On September 13th, 1998, Governor Roy Romer announced that the Ramsey case would go to a grand jury. On September 24th, Lou Smith resigned from working with the DA after trying and failing to convince them that the grand jury should hear his evidence alongside the Boulder Police Department's evidence. Um, He eventually got a lawyer, and the lawyer convinced them to hear his case. The issue is that the grand jury started on October 13th, 1998. It went for a year. And Lou Smith was given three hours of that time. Boo. Yeah. So there are three main camps in this case. There's the Ramsey's did it camp or RDI, the intruder did it camp, IDI, or the Burke did it camp, the BDI. Thanks for that, Reddit. Thanks, Reddit. The Boulder police presented the Ramsey's did it case. And I'm going to give you that theory i am going to give you the evidence that people point to as it were and then you can draw your own conclusions the theory is that patsy ramsey this is what the boulder police think other people think it happened maybe a little differently but this is what the boulder police presented patsy ramsey accidentally murdered her daughter out of rage over a bedwetting incident she slammed her head into something possibly the edge of a bathtub And then she, or she and John together, staged the murder and kidnapping to cover it up. There are a number of things people point to. The paintbrush in the garage was one of Patsy's paintbrushes to start. There is a few sticking points on the note that people point to. Firstly, Patsy says that she found the note on the spiral staircase in the back of the house laid out on the third step from the bottom. This is a strange place to leave a ransom note. It's really out of the way. Some people say you would have to know the family's daily routine to even know to leave it there. Mm -hmm. People point to the fact that Patsy may have known that John received a $118,000 bonus, and that's why that's what they asked for, for the ransom. The note was written on Patsy's notepad using a pen found in the house. 
Um, some people think that SBTC stands for Subic Bay Training Center, which is a naval base that John was stationed at, but nobody calls it a training center. It's known as U.S. Naval Base Subic Bay. It's also been said that SBTC perhaps stands for Saved by the Cross, which would be a reference to Patsy's religiousness. People were very, very critical of Patsy putting Jean Benet in pageants. Um, this became one of the main villainizing elements of the case. Lou Smith said the pageant photos and videos became the criminal record that the Ramses didn't have, which I think is very interesting. People were also suspicious of the fact that they lawyered up so quickly and that they got separate lawyers, which we talked about. It, uh, the separate lawyers things people think means that there was perhaps a conflict of interest between the two parents. People were suspicious of their unwillingness to cooperate, whether that was perceived or real. People point to the fact that John tried to go to Atlanta hours after he found his daughter dead. Um, John later admitted to doing this, and he said that he did it because they had been told they would have to leave the house, and their first instinct was to go be with their family in Atlanta. People point to Patsy's fingerprints on the bowl of pineapple, the fact that Jean Benet ate pineapple in the first place because um, Patsy's original statement was that she they got home and they put Jean Benet straight to bed. So how did the pineapple situation even happen? Mm -hmm. um, and then the fact that the room in the basement was so hard to find and out of the way, a lot of people said, as I said, that you would have to know the house really well to even be able to find that room. Or Jean Benet's bedroom. Yeah, the whole house was a maze. Mm -hmm. It would be hard to get around. Um, without knowing the house, it would be hard to get around without knowing the house in the dark. Yeah. It would be hard to get around without knowing the house and without making a lot of noise. Yeah. I want to say there is no evidence that she wet the bed on the night of the 25th. Um, her long johns and her underwear were urine stained, but her bedding was not. Yes. Statistically, we have to say the parents are most likely to have done it. Statistically, yes. It's her it's, family it's did it. It's most likely that someone in her house did it. Yes. Statistically speaking. So, as far as I can tell, what I have just presented to you is the evidence against John and Patsy Ramsey. I think a lot of the blame being laid on them definitely has to do with the media. Um, I think it also has to do with the complete lack of investigation into any other suspects by the boulder police department and i think it absolutely has to do with the fact that the boulder police department and the da could not work together yeah you can't say that there's no evidence supporting any other theory when you don't look to find evidence supporting any other theory yeah. that's it so on october 13th 1999 after what was an unusually long grand jury hearing District Attorney Alex Hunter announced that they would be bringing no charges against the Ramses or anyone else in the case. The Boulder Police Department was, of course, furious and continued their dogged pursuit of the Ramses. Lou Smith continued his pursuit of the intruder theory. In 2002, Mary Lacey took over as the District Attorney of Boulder and announced that she would be taking a new look at the Jean Benet case. Mary Lacey had DNA evidence from Jean Benet's body retested using the significant advances in DNA technology. These tests showed that the DNA found on Jean Benet in 1996 belonged to an unidentified male and did not match anyone in the Ramsey family. After receiving these test results, 
Mary Lacey publicly exonerated John and Patsy Ramsey in 2008. Uh, unfortunately, Patsy Ramsey died in 2006 of ovarian cancer, so she was not alive to see that day. And that is where I am going to end Jean Benet Ramsey Part Two. Whoa. <sighs> yeah, it's a doozy. Incredible research. Very well done. Thank you. In part three, we will talk about the implications of the evidence and what the theories are. And I'm really like looking forward to getting into it. I think that you really nicely laid out all of the facts in this episode so that we can sort of put the pieces together like of the puzzle in part three. Yeah, I'm excited to look at the theories. Uh, I... I don't actually know where I stand. I don't know what I think happened. I just know that I don't think that Patsy did it. So it's important for me to rule out that one specific theory so that we can then take a look at everything else. Yeah. I will say I don't know where I stand either. And I think it's I think that's for the best. I think it's best to go into it with an open mindset. I think one of the things that's so troubling about this case is that you either have to accept that it was staged or that it was a result of just an unending series of chaotic events. And I think that's what's hard for people to wrap their mind around. Because when you look at the note, it's so... Like when they did psychological analysis of the note, essentially it was like every line indicates deception. And you can see why someone would go, that tells me that Patsy wrote it. It's her notepad. Her left-hand sample looks like the note, you know, whatever. But you also have to leave open the option that the person who wrote it could have been intending to deceive in the note. And that doesn't mean that it was someone in the family. Do you know what I mean? Like, kidnappers can also write deceptive notes. So I just think it's like a balance of looking at all of the pieces of this case and trying to like trying to find an acceptable narrative and I think what's so upsetting and so troubling for people is that there just isn't one like there isn't one that neatly fits in the box you know so yeah it's either like the neat explanation that it was made up or the very messy explanation that like shit got wild yeah you know and you know like investigators also say like there's no other instance basically in history where there was a ransom note and a body found at at the same time in the same place Mm -hmm. so like none of it makes sense i can understand that as an investigator especially if you're not familiar with homicides and even if you are familiar with homicides it's just totally mind-bending and so difficult to wrap your mind around any of it and the fact that it was so compromised to begin with means that it was near impossible for them to get any clear answers. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, like, it, I'm going to stick with the most possible chaotic events happened at every turn because life is chaos and entropy reigns yeah. supreme in the universe. And I think that might be what trips people up is like, it just seems like Murphy's Law reigned and like everything that could have gone wrong did. And I think that's hard to accept because they got away with it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think because we still don't know what happened, it's hard for people to accept that it may have just been a really unhinged person 
doing something really crazy. I don't know. It's, that's yeah. what bothers me so much about this case. Like, it's, that's why I can understand where you would go, Patsy fucking did it. Like, look at the note. That, no, like, why would you write that? You know, I, like, I get it. And it just is it so frustrating and infuriating to me. Yeah, it's infuriating. So if you're listening to this on Monday, December 20th, we're going live tonight at 7 p.m. Pacific time. We will be talking about the case. I think we'll probably talk a little bit about theory because we just can't help ourselves. So if you want um, sort of a teaser of what's going to come in the next episode, you should definitely tune in. But we will try not to spoil anything for part three. Um, But we will be talking about the case. We'll be available to talk about other things if people have questions or, you know, um, we'll just... We'll just play it by ear, but definitely come join us on TikTok Live. Our handle is at Mystery Team Inc. with no punctuation, uh, 7 p.m. Pacific time. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Kayla, for that incredible research. Thank you for your help and your analytical insights. You're welcome. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Buckle the buck up. Smooches. Goodbye. Goodbye.